following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. So glad that you're here. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Isaiah and chapter 20 and chapter 21, because chapter 20 is somehow got so short already. Isaiah chapter 20. In the year that Tartan came to Ashdod, when Sargon, the king of Assyria, sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it, at the same time the Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years for a sign and a wonder against Ethiopia, sorry, against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. Then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, Surely such is our expectation, wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria, and how shall we escape? This is uh, of interest because Israel often relied upon Egypt for assistance militarily, and they're being shown that that is a vain hope in these times. Chapter 21. The burden against the wilderness of the sea. As the whirlwinds in the south pass through, so it comes from the desert, from a terrible land. A distressing vision is declared to me. The treacherous dealer deals treacherously, and the plunderer plunders. Go up, O Elam. Besiege, O Media. All its sighing I have made to cease. Therefore my loins are filled with pain. Pangs have taken hold of me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I was distressed when I heard it. I was dismayed when I saw it. My heart wavered. Fearfulness frightened me. The night for which I longed, he turned into fear for me. Prepare the table. Set a watchman in the tower. Eat and drink. Arise, you princes. Anoint the shield. For thus has the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman. Let him declare what he sees. And he saw a chariot with a pair of horsemen a chariot of donkeys and a chariot of camels. And he listened earnestly with great care. Then he cried, A lion, my Lord. I stand continually on the watchtower in the daytime. I have sat at my post every night. And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. Oh, my threshing and the grain of my floor. That which I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have declared to you. Now, the burden against Duma. He calls me out of Seir. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman, what of the night? The watchman said, the morning comes and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, return, come back. It's going to take a while to untangle all of that, but what the basic idea here is that you have uh, the declaration about the watchman saying, the morning comes, there's going to be a time of good, a time of relief, but then the night is going to return. So if you think you're going to escape, say, the uh, affliction of Assyria, well, you're going to have to face the affliction later of Babylon. Now the burden against Arabia. In the forest in Arabia you will lodge, O you traveling companies of Dedanites. O inhabitants of the land of Tema, bring water to him who is thirsty. With their bread they met him who fled, for they fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, and from the distress of war. For thus the Lord has said to me, Within a year, according to the year of a hired man, all the glory of Kedar will fail, And the remainder of the number of archers, the mighty men of the people of Kedar, will be diminished, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken it. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter, first scriptural letter, I should say. He wrote before this letter one. 
to them. Actually, a series of four letters, of which we have number two and number four, preserved by God, inspired actually, and then preserved. The other two were not part of Scripture ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love abiding and spiritual gifts receding, as I've titled the message uh, this, this morning. And uh, why are we here? Well, just because we were in the section before this last week, so here we go. We're just uh, going chapter by chapter, uh, paragraph by paragraph, and uh, this is where we have landed today. So we trust God will help us in the next few minutes to grasp a little bit something new about this passage. Uh, Hopefully, it will be uh, for you a a blessing and a benefit. So let's uh, pay as, as good of attention as we can here and look at this section. So chapter 13, remember, is about the more excellent way that God has for us to operate our lives in the church. And uh, he mentions, uh, Paul does that in verse 31 of the prior chapter. He says, earnestly desire the best gifts. So that is, as a corporate body, desire that God would give you the best gifts, that you would have uh, those gifts of of proclamation and uh, of prophecy, those most edifying gifts in the church. And uh, we made an application of that to our own lives uh, in in the church. We're not looking for our own, uh, you know, betterment, if you will, our own aggrandizement as we seek to level up our own personal gifts. That's not the desire here. The desire is a corporate desire that uh, God would give our church gifted people and gifts to operate in the church so that the church would honor him more and be able to accomplish God's will. But he says at the end of verse 31, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And that way is, contextually has to be, the way of love the way of love. Uh, so we learned about what the absence of love looks like in the first couple of verses of the chapter, really verses 1 through 4, or 1 through uh, 2, and then uh, he, uh, in verse 3 actually also, and then he gives a definition of love, starting in verses 4 all the way through 7. And we looked at those 15 characteristics of love. And then finally, we spent some time just thinking about the application of the doctrine of Christian love in our lives, in our homes, in our church, in our families, and and all the rest that we looked at last time. Those notes are available for you online. Uh, We may have some extras around in the back as well if you want a print copy of those. But now we look at verse 8, and let me read. Uh, Actually, I'll just go ahead and read the rest of the chapter here, and then we'll dig into some of the details. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man... I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Probably one of the most well-known verses in the Bible and certainly in this chapter but we won't get there for a few minutes. First of all, the permanence of love. Just look at the first few words of verse 8. Love never fails. Love never fails. The love, the text in Greek says, the love never falls away. Uh, And when I, I think he's saying the love, he puts the article in front of it because he's saying this love that we're talking about, this love never falls away. Away. Love will forever be a thing, <clears throat> as they say today. Genuine Christian love, the way of God's love and Christ's love, the love poured out by the Holy Spirit, these will always exist. They will remain forever in the present age, in the age to come, by which I mean the kingdom age and the eternal state, as far as your eye could see, as far as your imagination could take you into the future, there will be the perfect manifestation of love 
between God and man, man and God, and man and his fellow mankind. Now, there is no perfect love today. Perhaps you're familiar with that phrase, perfect love. That's been used by those who teach perfectionism that says, uh, you know, hey, we can in this life reach a state where we uh, commit no more known sin. That is a false teaching. Uh, but they, they call it under the heading of perfect love. There is no such thing as that today, but there will be a perfect manifestation of love in the future. And the, the love that will never fail, just, it's not, this is not, you know, really for you guys, because I think you know this, but for anyone else who may be listening, uh, this love is not an erotic kind of love, okay? It's not like the Mormon or Islamic doctrine where there's this kind of sensual love in the heavenly state forever and ever, and that's something they look forward to in a kind of fleshly way. That is not the kind of love we're talking about. Now, Paul is saying here that love is permanent, outlasting all of the other gifts that he's been talking about. I mean, why in heaven, for instance, are you going to need the gift of prophecy? You won't. And so love is going to outlast that. Uh, the gift of tongues in heaven? I mean, I don't know how the language thing is going to work out. Either we know all the languages or we're all going to share the same language or something. I don't know how that works, but I think there's going to be something a little different than what we experience today. Uh, but this love will always outlast any of those gifts. And I think this is part of Paul's point to them is to say, look, you guys are, are, are after, this, uh, after these spiritual gifts, uh, but this love is the more excellent way to live life in the church and life in general. In fact, you could say that if all the spiritual gifts disappeared, you know, all the ones we've looked at in chapter 12, uh, from the more kind of spectacular ones to administrations and service and, and preaching and all of those things. All of that could disappear, let's hypothetically suppose. But if love remained, which it will, uh, we would be in pretty good shape, wouldn't we? If Christians just loved one another, if church members loved one another, if, if humans loved one another. In fact, the Bible is clear that many of the gifts already have disappeared. But we're none the poorer for that. We have everything that we need. I hope you agree with me about that. We have everything we need to live a life of godliness. There's nothing that you lack that you can say, you know, if only God would give me that, then I could succeed. No, whatever you need, God has already provided for you. You have all the spiritual resources to live for God. And many of us have much more than we need to live for God. In fact, we have so many material resources that they may actually drag us down from serving God effectively. Now, let me extrapolate this just for a moment. Well, actually, I forgot to say one thing. I was, I was going down that path, and then I reversed and went another way. Let me say this. The Corinthians were infatuated with these other gifts. They weren't truly loving God and loving each other. They were infatuated with these gifts. What's the difference between infatuation and love? Infatuation is a kind of a self-centered thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's about me. You know, I want these great gifts so that I can appear to be something before the church. I want to be able to speak in tongues. And they had, as we'll see in chapter 14, their church services were just madhouse kind of operations. They've, you know, people popping up and wanting to say something and proclaim this and tongue that and interpret this. And, and Paul has to kind of tamp down their, you know, over-enthusiasm, their zeal for these things. They were infatuated with this, but Paul is telling them, look, there's something better than infatuation with these temporary gifts. There's true love, godly love, agape love that you're supposed to exercise. Now, let me just, as I think about this notion, I was just thinking about it in my study this week, about love never failing. It occurred to me that in, in marriage counseling, I have heard this before, you probably have as well, uh, a spouse who says, our love is gone. You know, what's the next stop after that? Divorce, right? Our love is gone. 
or something like that. What they mean is that they do not feel like they're in love anymore. They don't feel that kind of emotion and the warm fuzzy and the infatuation and the, and the romantic idea and all of that. Love has seemed to fail. But how does that play with this notion that love never fails? This idea that our love is gone, it's disappeared, you know, it's, it's, it belies the idea or disguises the idea of what's truly going on. True love never fails. True love never fails. What the person may be, in fact, saying is, you know, not, not that love just went poof and it disappeared. He's actually, or she is actually saying that they do not love anymore. There's not a failure of love. There's a failure of the person to love. Are you with me on that? It's like the devotional we put on the second side of the bulletin there. You know, you think you come to, to marriage and it's a box full of love. And you can just take out of that box and take and take and take and what do you forget? There's nothing in that box to begin with. You have to put it in there. You have to work at it. So you don't say the box is empty, you know, woe is us, boo-hoo. No, look at yourself and say, what did I fail to put into that box? It's not a failure of love itself. It's a failure of the person who has failed to exercise love. They're failing in their promise to their spouse. I mean, when you came before the altar in the church, what did you say? You promised to what? Love one another and till death do you part and richer and poorer and sick and in health and all that good stuff. But then you stop doing that if you say our love has disappeared. In fact, also, if you say our love is gone, you're failing to obey God. Ephesians 5 tells husbands to do what? Love their wives. And Titus chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that wives are to love their husbands. Those are commands from heaven, my friends. Okay? So be realistic with yourself. It's not that our love has disappeared. Rather, it is I have disappeared our love. I have failed. I have sinned in not loving you, my spouse, as God has commanded me to do. So, you know, we're good at blaming kind of either other people, you know, our spouse is such a bad person, or blaming us kind of, well, I guess it just kind of, you know, evaporated. It's gone. That's convenient, but it's just an excuse. Love never fails, okay? True love, agape love does not fail. Just an application for you, especially married folks in the church and listening out there online. We go then to verse 8b, the second half of the verse. Notice it says that uh, we have uh, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge, that that, uh, triumvirate, if you will. There's another triumvirate later in the passage, but these three. And so in verses 8 and 9 now, we look at the transience of these revelatory gifts as opposed to the permanence of love. Now we have the transience or the impermanence or temporariness. That's just too awkward to say temporariness, but transience of these gifts. So we have the three gifts, prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Now look at those, well, remember the definitions of these, prophecies, prophecies, special revelation of God given to a person to, uh, in the early church for them to authoritatively teach. And remember I said there's, we could kind of look at prophecy in kind of two ways. You could say there's a, a miraculous version of it and then a kind of run-of-the-mill version of it. I think we're talking about the miraculous version of it here. Um, and I don't like to use the, the run-of-the-mill version anyway because it gets too confusing. We just call this preaching, proclamation, teaching of the Bible teaching of the pre-existing truth of God, as opposed to prophecy, which was new stuff from the Lord, not just even necessarily predictive prophecy, but any kind of proclamation of new revelation from the Lord. Uh, So prophecies, the miraculous kind, they will be set aside. Tongues, what are tongues? Tongues are a gift of God's Spirit given to a person so that they can speak and understand a foreign language without learning it. Okay? 
tried to say this over and over again. It's not ecstatic gibberish. That comes right out of the mystery cults in the old days, in the old Greek religions and other places where they try to whip themselves up into a frenzy and speak in these ecstatic, emotional-driven kind of of, uh, scenarios. And that's not real tongues. Bible speaks about the tongue gift as a real human language. And without learning it, somebody could, could speak it like the disciples did on the day of Pentecost to spread the word of God out very quickly so they wouldn't have to spend two years in language school before they could speak anything from God. So this was given to the early church, but at some point Paul reveals here, look at this, middle of verse 8, they will cease. going to run its course and become obsolete, or as I say later in my notes, it will come to a point of extinction, planned extinction, okay? And then finally, the gift of knowledge. Knowledge is the gift uh, of a divinely given insight or understanding into something, and I, I was trying to think of an example of this. This is not like, you know, I get up on Sunday morning and I say, you know, somebody out there has, you know, had some struggle in their life and and uh, it looks like this, and you need to do this, and, and, and you're sitting there saying, oh, wow, how did pastor know that? You know, that's not what we're talking about here, okay? That's made-up stuff. That's not real. Um, what I'm talking about is something like in Acts chapter 5. In the beginning of Acts chapter 5, you have Peter and the disciples there, and they're taking offerings for the support of uh, the poor in the church. And Ananias and Sapphira come, and they make an offering, pretending, putting forth that, you know, look, we sold this property for, say, $100,000, and we're putting it all on the altar, man. All $100,000 is there, when in fact they sold it for $200,000, and they, they're holding back. They, 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 it was, as Peter said later, it's within your power. You give however much you want to give. But don't make like you're giving everything like everybody else was and try to make yourself look all good. He says, why did, why did Satan put it in your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? Somehow he knew, and I think that's connected to this gift of knowledge. He knew this situation without, you know, having looked at the assessor's records and all that sort of thing, sales of, of properties in the recent past. So it's not told us how he knew, but it may have been that God gave him that insight. Anyway, that is going to be set aside as well. And do notice uh, that some interpreters make a big deal about the different verbs here. Uh, Just let your eyes look at that verse again. Eight, prophecies, they will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge will vanish. So there's actually two verbs here. Uh, The first and the third are the same. The middle one is different. And so some interpreters make kind of a big deal about this. Uh, I don't think the difference is that significant. The point is the gifts are going to stop operating. That's what he's trying to get across. To focus on them, these gifts, these temporary gifts, to focus on them is childish. Okay? They're ordained for only a temporary period in the early life of the church until something else better comes along. And let me just mention now uh, my thought on this idea of permanence or impermanence, transience. There are millions and millions of Christians today who basically deny what this says. They say, in effect, that, well, it does say they will cease, but the point of cessation is not in the early church, it's not even today, and it's so far into the future, like when Christ comes or in heaven, that it basically becomes a moot statement. Let me see if I can say that a different way. If you say, or if I say, this thing is going to stop, but it's actually not going to stop until time is expired, then has it really stopped ever? Has there ever been any fulfillment of that statement if it's not stopped at some point in time in history? The, the teachers in the charismatic movement are, in fact, are emphatic that the gifts have not ceased in this age. And since uh, there's evidence in the Bible of prophetic activity in the future, remember, remember Joel's prophecy that says, Hey, you know, there's going to become a point in which your sons and daughters will prophesy and your old men will dream dreams and all that sort of stuff. There's going to be that kind of thing again. And so, in effect, 
This view says there's tongues and prophecies and knowledge and all that stuff now, healings now, and there will be that in the future age around the coming of Christ. So when do they cease? They don't cease in any meaningful sense under that uh, idea. Now, I don't take it that heaven is a relative or a relevant cessation point for these gifts. Follow me now, because it's kind of obvious that once everything's wrapped up, we don't need these gifts, like I said, tongues and and language barriers and prophecies and and all of those sorts of things. And, And to me, reading this text, it's very unlikely that the Apostle Paul has in mind the second coming of Christ. Um, or the heavenly state. Now, some do take this view. I grant that. Uh, they say the cessation of these gifts occurs at the Christ, Christ coming or in the heavenly state, but I think there's a better way to understand this. Um, God has stopped this, the gifts now, and he's actually going to restart them in a meaningful way in the eschaton when Christ returns. Uh, Acts chapter 2 gives us this from Joel chapter 2. So, What I think is coupling the promise of the restart of the gifts with the cessation of the gifts that Paul is talking about here and bolstered by our own experience, it seems only reasonable to believe that the cessation of the gifts is a real thing in the present age. It's not just an illusion. Those gifts will not continue in the present age and then also continue in the future age. Okay, so have I lost you yet? (laughs) Basically, if they don't cease ever, What is the point of the statement? Paul is saying something is going to happen. You know, to say that Paul, you know, Paul says, yeah, they're going to cease, but actually they never will cease in a practical way. That's a denial of this text. That's how I take it. It's kind of like saying, well, I know the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth in six days, but that's not really how it happened. Let me tell you, let me tell you how it really happened. You know, Darwin helps us understand how it really happened and Stephen Hawking, he's got real insights in how it really happened. You know, mathematicians and singularities and the Big Bang and all of that. That's how it really happened. No, the Bible is either true or it's not true, friends. And, of course, we believe that it's true, and we've been convinced that it's true. But uh, we don't take the statements of Scripture and just kind of take them as advisory or optional statements. It says what it says, and it means what it says. Now, let's... Carry on from that. Maybe we can pick up that again in discussion later. But why, is, why are these gifts not permanent? Well, look at verse number 9. The Bible is crystal clear on my question here. Why impermanent? For we know in part and we prophesy in part. These gifts are going to go by the wayside because they only give part of the picture. They're incomplete. They're not whole or entire. And let me add here as well, I think Paul is including tongues as well here, because in verse 9 he says, we know and we prophesy. That's number 1 and number 2, and I think he's including number, or number 1 and 3, and I think he's including 2 just as, without even having to say it. We tongue in part as well is the idea. Okay. All three of these are going, to, are going to cease. They're going to fall away. They're going to be set aside by God. So we're right to understand that the tongues item is included, you know, the list in this twofold list, actually threefold is in the meaning. So something else has to come in place of these gifts. Let me see if I can say this all a different way. Tongues, prophecies, knowledge are gifts of revelation information from God to us. Paul is saying these things are partial. They're not complete. Okay, we're getting bits and pieces from heaven's pipeline here in terms of knowledge of God and what he wants us to know. Little bit here, little bit there, but not for the whole church and just the parts and pieces. And so he's saying we we know and we prophesy in part. Something else has to come that's going to open up that pipeline from heaven to give us everything that we need. And what is that? The arrival of that thing which is perfect, verse 10. So right now we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. There's the three gifts will will pass off the scene. 
and I think all the other miraculous gifts with them as well, although they're not specifically mentioned here. So the something else that we are looking for is the perfect thing, which comes and deals with this in part, partial, uh, unwhole nature, which Paul sees as something of a problem. You know, we prophesy in tongue in part, and you guys are all infatuated with these gifts, and you're all focused on these gifts, and, and, but these are temporary. You ought to be focused on love, and you ought to be thinking, we need something more than just a tongue or a prophecy once in a while. We need the whole body of God's revelation to be brought to completion. So whatever the gifts of knowledge, prophecy, and tongues do in part will be obsoleted because the whole will come. This is another reason why I don't think that Paul is talking about the second coming of Christ. Because the second coming of Christ does not answer the need for the church today to have a whole revelation from God. Now, don't take that to diminuate the coming of Christ at all, please. I'm not, but he's not here. He hasn't been here for 2,000 years. And the church could simply not exist on little bits of tongues and prophecies and gifts of knowledge given to certain people in certain churches that are never recorded for us. And we don't know for sure if they're right or not because they've come in a, in a context like in Corinth that's messed up. So something has to solve this this incomplete nature of revelation. And it's not the coming of Christ. It's something that fulfills or completes the revelation. Okay, so these, these gifts reveal information to mankind, but they're in part or in partial, or partial nature, unwhole, incomplete, in piecemeal format, little segments, incomplete and insufficient for the life of the church. And they were tied to circumstances in which they were delivered and, and all of that sort of thing. They weren't written down, so they didn't provide a stable doctrinal basis. So what I'm doing is I'm making the case that the nature of the partial revelation means that the nature of the perfect thing has to also be revelation. So that which is perfect has to complete what the partial gifts were unable to complete. So it therefore must give a full picture of divine revelation, not segmented, not out in piecemeal format. It must be put in permanent form, written down, and generally applicable to the entire church. It has to be sufficient so that the church does not lack anything it needs to obey all the things that Jesus commanded us. You have to remember, it had to be somewhat heavy on the minds of the apostles who in Matthew 28 are told to teach the church everything that Jesus had commanded them. And he said to them in John chapter 16 thereabouts, there are things that I'm not telling you now because you're not ready. But when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. So the, the apostles knew something more is coming. We need something else. We need some more information if we're to complete the mission that Jesus gave to us. And as time went on, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Paul and Jude and James and Peter, those are the eight men who wrote the New Testament, received that information from God and were able to complete that which was partial, that which was incomplete. And they put it in a form that was authoritative, written, certain, uh, absolutely clear for us. So we don't think it's, you know, we don't have to wait till heaven till this is the case. Uh, and now we know, too, from other scriptures, by the way, and experience, that no new revelation from God is coming to us, right? How many people have you legitimately really known that have legitimately spoken in tongues? Zero. How many people have gone into U of M hospital and emptied it out by the gift of healing that they have? None. Okay. So we know by experience and also by other scriptures that those gifts uh, have ceased. Um, there are no prophecies, tongues, revelation, or whatever. You know, you, how do you learn the Bible today? By normal means. You sit down with a paper and a pen, pencil, read your Bible, study with your computer. 
help, you know, look up the different verses and words and all that sort of stuff. And you do the hard work of understanding the scriptures. It doesn't just come to you by magic or, or osmosis. So, an absent Christ does not do that. A far off heaven and, and far off in time does not provide that kind of revelation that we need. Fake spiritual gifts do not complete that which is partial. Only the completed Bible can do that. And so when the gospel writers and James and Peter and Jude all finished their writings, that which was perfect was in place. What I'm saying is the perfect is the completed canon of Scripture. That's my understanding of it. Again, others disagree, but that's just going to have to be the case uh, for now. Now, one could wish that Paul would have been more plain in his statement of this news. You know, Paul, you know, you could say, Paul, why don't you just say the Bible, the book, Paul often spoke of the coming of Christ, and, and so, you know, some have said, well, that would, when that which is perfect is come, come, that talks about the second coming, you know, but he doesn't use the word parousia here, the common word that he uses for the coming of Christ. He does not use the concept of eternity, he doesn't use the concept of heaven, he, he uses this neuter noun, the perfect thing, which is somewhat generic, so it does leave us in a little bit of a quandary, but I've taken it to be the Bible the completion of the canon of Scripture. Now, how this fits with the Corinthian situation is they were obsessing about tongues and prophecy and so on, which were destined to pass off the scene. It's like getting wrapped up in worldly things. What's going to happen to all the stuff that you own? What's going to happen to it? It's going to be burned up. I mean... If you, don't, if you die first, then it's going to be passed to somebody else and it's going to wear out or they're going to throw it out or they're going to sell it or give it away or whatever. That's, it's, why get all tangled up in worldly things when that's what's going to happen to it? And he's, Paul's saying a similar thing here. Why get tangled up in all these gifts as if they're the, you know, the cat's meow? The Bible is that. The full revelation of God is something to get tied up into, but not these temporary gifts. Now, the other way that occurred to me to, to say this was is kind of a reverse way of thinking. I just turn everything on its head. Has the perfect thing come? And I answer that question in my mind this way. Well, if what is partial has gone away, then it must have come. Yes? We know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. So our tongue's gone. Our prophecy's gone? Is the gift of knowledge gone? Well, if they're gone, then the perfect must already have come. And Christ hasn't come, so it can't be Christ. Heaven has not come, so it's not heaven. This perfect thing cannot be heaven. The perfect thing cannot be Christ. The perfect thing must be the full revelation of God, the Bible. Now, Paul gives us two illustrations of this in verses 11 and 12. The first is childhood versus adulthood. Think back to your childhood days. Oh, how you thought and how you uh, reasoned. You had some childlike patterns of thinking, childlike ways of talking, of reasoning, but mature understanding and, and uh, speaking came later in life. Growth happened, and you naturally put away childish things. You know, for example... Playing pretend now holds a lot less attraction to you than it did when you were five, okay? Unless you're a parent and you're playing pretend with your five-year-old or three-year-old or whatever, then that's fun, right? But you know, you, you know it's what it is in its place. It's not how life is. You know, you can't pretend away the harsh realities of life, the things that have to be done the bills that have to be paid, and all of those sorts of things. So this illustration shows the transition from partial to complete, childhood to full-grown adulthood. The church was in its childlike stage initially. When the perfect came, the church was able to operate in adult mode. Okay. Second, and we'll draw an application from that in just a moment. Secondly, the second illustration is in verse uh, 12. Again, these are illustrations of partial versus whole, partial versus complete, not partial versus Christ. 
okay, or partial versus heaven. Whatever the partial was, the complete fills. And so the partial state of childhood is corresponded to or contrasted, rather, with the full state of adulthood. And verse 12, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, the unfortunate part of this is, or thing about this, when you read the word face to face, your associative machine in your head, which is a very marvelous machine, says face to face. I shall behold him far beyond the starry sky. Is that what that says? No, it's talking about seeing yourself in a mirror. But we see face to face, and we tie it in with the word come, and we say, well, it must be Christ coming, and I'm going to see him face to face. How wonderful that will be. This text says nothing about that. It's illustrating the partial versus the complete with a dim mirror versus a good mirror. Think, if you will, of a... Of a old-style, dark, metallic, shiny to be sure, but dark, metallic mirror. You could look at that and get a, you know, kind of picture of how you're doing. Kind of is the part in the right place, and, you know, I'm going to fix my face up a little bit and all that. You could get an idea, but it's nothing like our modern mirrors today. You know, when you look at yourself, you're like, whoa, there I am. You know, and all of what I am is right there in front of me. I'm seeing myself face to face. That's the illustration. The partial is like Paul and the church are kind of looking at, at what God's providing and saying, it's there, but I'm not, I don't have the whole picture yet. Whereas what he's saying is, when the perfect has come, then I'll be looking at a very clear picture of how things really are. Instead of us thinking from this verse, you know, we shouldn't immediately run to, you know, face to face I shall behold him. Better would be to run to James chapter 1. You remember James chapter 1? How does it illustrate God's word? It's like a mirror, a man beholding his face in a glass. If he's a man who, who reads but doesn't obey, he's like he looks in the mirror and says, oh, whatever, and goes on his way. Versus the man who looks intently into it and says, okay, some changes need to be made here. i got to work on this. That's the mirror illustration that I'd like, or, or mirror truth, if you will, that I'd like your mind to go to when you think about this passage. You see the truth in all of its fullness and how that reflects back on you and means that you have to change your life. I also don't make too much of this um, phrase, I am I also am known as if it's saying that God knows me perfectly. So at some point in the future, I will know like that. Is that true? Will you ever know like God knows? No, never. You will know more. You will be aware of more, certainly. But don't think that when you get to heaven, you're going to suddenly be omniscient. That's not the case. It's impossible. Only God is that. So it's not theologically sound to say, well, God knows me perfectly, so I'll know just like that. No, that, that the whole point of the illustration here is to convey a transition from partial to complete in the realm of revelatory information. Okay? Now, we move on to verse 13. And now, he says, abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. Each has a critical place in our lives today. I hope you agree. Faith, hope, love. Critical for us to live by faith, to walk in hope, and to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the great, great commandment and the second great commandment. But there is a time when we will not walk merely by faith. You know that, right? You'll walk by what? Sight. You will see Jesus. He will see you. You will see God. You will see the saints in heaven. You will walk by sight, not by, you know, it's a blessed thing what you have experienced in your life. In fact, Jesus says to Thomas, blessed are those who have what? Not seen and yet believed. That's us. We haven't seen Christ. You know, if we were like Thomas, it would be an awful long time before we came to faith. 
because we'd be waiting for a long time for Jesus to show up. Thankfully, God used that as an illustration or a teaching for us that we're blessed because we believe without seeing. So we walk now by faith, but then by sight. There also will be a time when we won't walk in hope. Why? Because Paul says, where does he say it? Romans 8. I'll just read this. This is an interesting little verse. Romans 8, 24 and 25. It says this. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You know, one of the things I hope for, that I hope to see, which is a certain expectation that I will see, but I'm looking forward to experiencing it, is the kingdom of Christ. Now, that is a valid, real hope for me today. I hope it is for you as well. But what about when we're there? I won't say I hope for this. I hoped in the past for this, and now I'm here. Hope has run its course. It's done now because I'm experiencing what I was promised to experience. So what we hope for, we will experience at that time, and we will not hope for it again. So faith will give way to sight. Hope will give way to experiential reality. But there is no time when love will be inoperative. When are you going to stop loving God? Never. When are you going to stop loving your neighbors, you know, your perfect neighbors in the perfect heaven? Never. Isn't that amazing? Love abides. Love never fails. It will continue on into the heavenly state forever and ever. As we close, one of the reasons why God took away the gifts from the church was because they were abused by the church. They were puffed up and the use of the gifts, misusing them in connection with foreign language and tied in with their past experience and pagan religious experience. Even in our most recent century of church history, from the early 1900s to the early 2000s, think of the abuses of the charismatic gifts. Think of the Benny Hinn's promising people to be healed when they're not going to be healed. The people saying they can speak in tongues when they can no more speak in tongues than, than you know anything. Or the people who say they've got a word of knowledge or a word of prophecy and they have not. And they mislead people into the prosperity gospel and all the rest of it. The gifts are abused. Those aren't real gifts. Those are abuses of the historical gifts that God gave. Much is unholy and mistaken in the practice of the charismatic church. Also, we cannot claim that we need more gifts because God has given us this love from him that allows us to exercise with excellence the gifts that God does give. You know, we cannot long for a reversion back to the childlike days of the early church. We live in a time when we have all the gifts that we need, even though the variation of those gifts has been reduced by the passage of time. What do I mean by, remember extinction? If, if there were, you know, 10 gifts given in the early church and now we only have five, and I didn't do the numbers to tell you, I'm just making up two numbers off the top of my head. So what if we don't have the five that have disappeared? We have the five that God continues to give today, okay? The endangered, uh, or ne- well, really never endangered gifts, the extinct gifts Uh, experience that divinely planned extinction, and they're gone. They're not relevant for us today. We also cannot claim today to live in in an era of darkness as if we're looking into a dark metallic mirror. We live in the age of the completed Word of God. We live in an adult church world. One, One criticism of the church from the oh, say, 70s forward, is that the church has become juvenilized. Juvenile, it it acts or behaves in a very juvenile fashion. It's all about experience and all about, you know, uh, the the music and, and all about the emotions. It's juvenile. I don't want to live or minister or 
create a juvenile church. That's like what Corinthians were up to. They were in a juvenile state. They needed to grow up. Paul is using 1 Corinthians 13 to help the church to grow up. And we've been given now the Word of God in its completeness, all of the revelation of God, and he expects us to live it with maturity and obedience. As much as he has given to us in revelation, he expects us in a commensurate way to live in a way that is mature and whole, corresponding in degree to the amount of revelation that he has given should be our maturity and our love for God and our work for him. This is not playtime. This is real adult life we're living. And I've often said it, it kind of, you know, it does kind of fit with my personality. Um, I, I, I long ago left the liking of the childish things in life. Did you have that experience perhaps? Some of your childhood friends never kind of, you know, they took a long time to kind of grow up into real things. I always like to talk to adults more. That's just an illustration of what I'm saying here. We've got to move on. We're not raising children or raising future adults, and they need to be in the church this way, understanding we have the treasure of this book, and we can live in a way that is pleasing to God, not in a kind of juvenile fashion. And so we grow up, and perhaps this passage of Scripture helps us to take the next step in that growth. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you'll help us to not think, act, and understand as children, but to think, act, and understand as adults. In this matter of divine revelation, we thank you that you have given us the completed canon of Scripture, that we lack nothing that is needful for a life of godliness. Oh, how we thank you for that. Lord, we pray your blessing on our time in the Word today, and may it bear good fruit down the line. In Jesus' name, amen.